This is Visionary, a show exploring how nuclear powers your world. I'm Mary Carpenter. And I'm Jordan Houghton. Let's jump in. Welcome to today's episode of Visionary. We have a really interesting guest today. I think today's conversation is a little bit wonkier because we really dive into policy around nuclear and not just in the U.S., but around the world. So it's a really interesting conversation. Hang with us as we go through it. I think all of our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. One thing that I think is very interesting about today's guest is that she wasn't always pro-nuclear. She didn't start out that way, but learning about nuclear brought her over to understanding its necessity in fighting climate change and for energy security around the world. So we'll have a really interesting perspective from our guest today. She's from California. She herself said that she's from a pretty hardcore environmental background. So she was influenced to feel one way about nuclear, but when she started to learn more about the necessity that nuclear plays to fight climate change, she's changed her opinion. So, you know, I think it's an important story to tell that as we're considering climate change and what we need to do to fight it, um, that nuclear is such an important tool that we have in the toolbox. I'm presuming many of our listeners are coming to us not 100% sure how they feel about nuclear either. And I'm hoping that these conversations help educate them and give them resources for learning more and cut through some of the misinformation that's out there. I think it's really important for people to have a place to turn to learn what they need to know. I think there's been a lot of misconceptions out there. That's a theme that comes up in a couple of our episodes. And it's interesting to me how many people will actually sit down with the information, digest it, and realize that nuclear is a solid option for climate change and energy security. Right, and this guest is heavily influenced uh, by climate change, but she also talks about that energy security piece that you just brought up, you know, and that might resonate with some listeners. If climate change isn't the top of issue for you, maybe energy security is. And uh, we dive in a little bit in this episode to American innovation and Amer- American technology and how important it is for America to stay competitive in nuclear energy because if we're not providing the technology, then places like Russia and China will. And our guest gives a really interesting perspective of how these are 100-year agreements. And if America doesn't do it, then other countries will create these relationships with Russia and China. Mary, I think bringing up the idea of energy security in the context of national security is a really fascinating angle of this conversation. It gets a little bit deeper than I think maybe everyone is expecting to hear on this podcast, but it's really important for everybody to understand the energy security piece of it and how other countries like a Russia and China's influence over nuclear programs in other parts of the world can impact us here at home in the United States. 
we, we've been talking about our guest today, but we haven't formally introduced her. Her name is Lindsay Walter, and she's the Director of International Policy for Third Way's Climate and Energy Program. And she co-founded Carbon Free Europe, an initiative of Third Way that provides analysis on technology-inclusive climate policy in the EU and UK. We are so excited to have Lindsay Walter joining us today. Lindsay is the Director of International Policy for Third Way's Climate and Energy Program, and she co-founded Carbon Free Europe, an initiative of Third Way's that provides analysis on technology-inclusive climate policy in the EU and UK. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump right in with you telling us a bit about you. Where are you from? What's your background? What you're doing now? Yeah, so I'm from Huntington Beach, California, but I've been on the East Coast for maybe over a decade now. And I've always been passionate about the environment. I think that comes from growing up in the ocean. I earned my bachelor's in sustainable development, then I went back to get my master's in environmental science and policy. So I come from a pretty hardcore environmental background and I feel very privileged to work in energy policy now because I think the climate crisis is one of the most, if not the most pressing challenge of our lifetime. You know, as director of international policy at Third Way, I oversee our transatlantic clean energy policy portfolio. And as you mentioned, I co-founded our European initiative, Carbon for Europe. We ultimately work to provide analysis and recommendations to policymakers, both in the US, EU, and UK, to ensure that climate policy can create affordable, clean, reliable energy. I'm going to just interject and ask, which coast is your favorite coast? (laughs) Oh, I hate to say it because I'm here with all of my East Coast friends, but I highly prefer the West Coast. The landscape, it's just so much more beautiful. I'm huge on the the mountains and the Rockies and the desert and the ocean landscape. The West Coast has it going on, but, you know, work is on the East Coast, so here we are. That's fair. It is beautiful. But I have to ask, growing up in California, were you always pro-nuclear? I was not. And this is actually more of a recent transition for me, to be honest. You know, I grew up in a very kind of traditional environmentalist mindset in Southern California. I also did my Fulbright research grant in Germany for a year, which surrounded me with a lot of academic traditional thinking in Germany around kind of anti-nuclear. And to be honest, it was just kind of a given in that community. You weren't really challenging assumptions around that a lot. You mostly just knew that it was bad and you talked about other clean energy resources. So that was the background that I came from. And it's funny, when I was interviewing for the job at Third Way, like five years ago now, one of the first questions I asked my now boss, Josh, was, do I have to be supportive of nuclear to join the Third Way team? Because I love a lot of the work that we do on different clean energy technologies and innovation policy. So I was really passionate about the job. But I knew Third Way also did work on nuclear. So I asked, do I have to be supportive of nuclear? And Josh said, no, we have other people working on that. Um, And then slowly over time, I run our energy systems modeling work, working with partners at Evolved Energy Research. And through that energy systems research that we do for both the U.S. and Europe, 
it began to become clear to me that our chances of reaching net zero emissions by 2050 increase significantly when we include nuclear in the mix. So that was the beginning of some cracks in my thinking and openness to learn more about the technology was actually through this climate lens and an understanding of why we might need nuclear to meet our climate goals. And then, you know, from there, I've begun to transition into, I say, you know, I'm supportive of nuclear for the climate reasons. Do you think that your friends and family and people back in California or people you worked with in Germany, do you feel like they're having a similar change in perspective? I have seen a shift in thinking around nuclear energy, both in my personal life. My family is now supportive of nuclear energy, and we've seen that a lot in California. They were going to shut down a nuclear power plant in California, and that became a big conversation where folks in my life from back home suddenly became supportive of that specific nuclear power plant to provide clean energy to California. But I've also seen it in a lot of the public opinion polling that we do at Third Way. We actually just did a project that looked at public opinion around nuclear energy in five different countries. And there was an overwhelming amount of support, more than 50% in each of those countries, including in Germany, which we included as part of the study. And one of the findings that I found most interesting was we looked at different categories and groups of people, and we looked at an environmentalist category. And actually, there's overwhelming support for nuclear within that category, which I found really interesting. It made me feel like maybe I'm not so alone and there's other environmentalists that are coming around uh, to nuclear for the same reasons that I did. When you're talking about nuclear needing to be a part of the solution to meet decarbonization climate goals, why is that? What, what is the issue with pathways that don't include nuclear? So there's a couple things that nuclear can do to ensure our best chance of reaching our climate goals. The first one is that nuclear can provide firm, dispatchable power, which just means that it can provide energy when you need it and it can make sure that that energy is stable and reliable. So this becomes really beneficial in balancing out the intermittency of renewables. Nuclear energy can ensure that even with, you know, 70 plus percent of renewables on the grid, you know, renewables are the workhorse of the transition, but you need to find a way to balance that out so we can turn our lights on when we need to turn the lights on. And that's where nuclear energy can be a really valuable asset in the grid. And we look at scenarios that say, okay, what would it take to do it with just wind and solar and energy storage, right? Can it be done when you take nuclear out of the equation? And the models always find a way to make it work. That's what they do. But then when you look at what would need to happen in practicality, it begun, uh, begins to look really unrealistic. You have to build out wind and solar at more than twice the rates that we've ever achieved historically. You need to use an incredible amount of land use, of raw materials, of workforce, uh, clean energy supply chains that we don't currently have and need to scale up rapidly. And you would need to overbuild wind and solar such an incredible amount because of their inter intermittency issues that it becomes very, very expensive. So for example, the study that we did for the EU, if you take nuclear out of the equation, it would, it would cost 80 billion euros more a year by 2050 versus a scenario that does include nuclear energy. So 
the ability to have a balancing resource on the grid is really important. And then there are other areas of the economy that nuclear can help decarbonize. Areas like steelmaking, chemicals, cement, industries that require really high temperature heat and really dense energy resources where electrification just doesn't cut it. And you need something like nuclear or another, perhaps hydrogen, that can help provide high temperature, reliable heat for industrial processes. So there's these kind of, we call them hard to abate sectors, which some folks hate, but more challenging sectors of the economy to decarbonize where nuclear can play a very important role. I'm so glad you brought that up because we're seeing so many exciting announcements. You mentioned steel. Um, there's was the Dow and X Energy announcement. Um, there's movement happening in these different industries that needs to decarbonize and they're realizing that nuclear is such a good option for them. What do you see as kind of the most exciting space and industry for that to happen in? I actually was visiting a steel facility in Remscheid, Germany last week, which was super fascinating for me. And right now they run on natural gas, but they need hydrogen to replace natural gas to be that clean energy resource to decarbonize their steel making. And they provide steel for things like wind turbines. So it's all part of this broader kind of clean energy supply chain. And the problem that they're struggling with is hydrogen currently costs five times the amount of natural gas. So this is one application that I think is very fascinating for nuclear energy. Maybe you use the nuclear energy directly for decarbonizing an industry, but you could also use the nuclear energy to create hydrogen through a process called high temperature electrolysis. And then you can use that hydrogen in some of these industries as well. So that's one area that I think is a fascinating application for nuclear that right now is uh, lacking with other clean energies. So we've talked a little bit about diversified industries adopting nuclear, getting interested in ways that they can use nuclear through hydrogen and and other applications. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what else you're seeing in this space. Yeah, I talked a lot about where nuclear can contribute to the grid, to industrial processes, and to hydrogen production. But there's one more I wanted to flag, which is it can also help out with district heating. And that's something we're seeing, for example, in the Czech Republic, they're building a pipeline from one of their nuclear power plants to their district heating system to provide heat for the city that previously was reliant on natural gas. And so there is wonderful opportunities to increase energy security, to ensure affordable heating options, especially in Eastern European countries where we're seeing creative solutions around nuclear as well. I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit about energy security and how nuclear comes into play. And, and I would start by asking you to just talk a little bit about what energy security is and means for listeners who may not have heard that term before. Yeah, we have been relatively privileged the past few decades, especially in the United States with fracking and the availability of natural gas. We haven't had to worry about energy security for quite some time. And energy security means that you have security of supply, that you know that you have the energy to meet 
your demand to turn on your lights, to heat your boilers, to run your factories. It also means that you don't have volatile pricing. So you have steady, reliable, predicting uh, predictable energy prices that don't run up your electricity bill or your heating bill in any given month. And with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it, it put a spotlight on how vulnerable Europe was to volatile fossil fuel prices. With They had a huge reliability on Russian fossil fuels, uh, in particular Russian natural gas. And so now they're going through this process of getting off of Russian natural gas with a combination of diversifying their gas resources. So the United States increased our exports of liquid natural gas to the EU to help them survive last winter, but also building out as much clean energy as they can within the EU to replace those fossil fuels in general. So this conversation around energy security has become really important because we have seen the impact on households, on communities, when you don't have a reliable supply of energy with reliable partners. So where nuclear can help here is it is a resource that can be built within your country, it can meet your energy needs, and it can reduce your dependence on energy imports. And we're seeing this become especially important in Eastern Europe, in countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Romania, countries that are kind of on the front line there that were previously dependent on, on Russian fossil fuel imports, now needing alternatives. They do not have incredible high quality wind and solar. They have some and they're working to maximize what they can get out of their wind and solar resources, but they're more limited than say Spain that has incredible solar energy resources. So they need another option that they can build that can meet their energy needs and that can reduce their dependence on imports. And that is where nuclear energy becomes a really interesting option to increase energy security. So Lindsay, when, when we're talking about Europe and not just Europe, but globally, there's a lot of influence from Russia and China. And I mean, we're talking about wanting to reduce dependence on on Russian fuel, for example, but it, it doesn't just stop there because we're seeing influence in their technology globally. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how that impacts the U.S., how that impacts really the whole world as as that progresses. Yeah, I'm happy to, because this is a huge consideration for U.S. nuclear energy. Russia and China are more than happy to export reactors to countries all over the world. They will build it, they'll own it, they'll operate it, they provide comprehensive fueling packages, and they are happy to use it as a geopolitical tool. So for the United States, sometimes it's not a question of if nuclear should happen, should nuclear happen? It is happening because Russia and China are moving ahead with it. And, you know, Russia has agreements with over 45 different countries. Uh, China has agreements with at least 13. And actually Russian exports of nuclear increased after their invasion of Ukraine. So the U.S. can be a player in this international market for nuclear technologies 
or else countries will keep turning to Russia and China to build reactors because they need energy, they need electricity, and they are more than happy to have it be paid for by Russia or China. So nuclear is happening internationally. This is a huge concern that the U.S. and U.S. policymakers need to be aware of and need to consider. We have international policy experts here who will talk about when you see Russian and Chinese influence on countries that it is generational. So once that they once they have gone into a country and invested in nuclear, that country doesn't have the ability to pivot immediately to U.S. technology. They end up invested in it. And I think I, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, that it's not something that we can go in and reverse immediately once it's been done. Yeah, I mean, these are 100 year agreements. You have everything leading up to before you build the reactor with, you know, regulatory processes, you have the construction, the operation, and then the decommissioning. So once these reactors are built in countries, they're establishing a 100 year relationship with Russia and China. And you can't just go in and swap out the technology at that point. So it's incredibly important that the United States is engaging with countries and providing reactors as an option. The other thing here is we used to take it for a given that the U.S. was the leader in standards around nonproliferation or on security. But the fact of the matter is whoever is exporting the technology is the one controlling and dominating the security, the non-pro standards. So I care a lot about us addressing the, the safeguard security non-proliferation risks of nuclear. For us to be able to do that, we need to be competitors in the global market. And so, you know, I, I talk a lot with the non-proliferation community and there are some real genuine concerns there. But we can't control what Russia and China are going to do. There are and have proven that they're more than happy to continue to export their reactors. So if we want to help influence and control these standards, especially with our, you know, our technology, which has some of the highest standards of safety and, and nonproliferation in the world, then we need to be a player. And if we're not, then the world will continue to buy Russian and Chinese reactors. How can the government help the U.S. government? I think this ties back to what I said around export finance and a comprehensive strategy from senior leadership in the U.S. government. We need tangible export finance options for our partners, and they are asking us for those options as well. The U.S. government has accomplished incredible technological feats. So this is something that we can do. It's a, a matter of prioritizing it and owning our leadership in this space. So we've talked a lot about benefits of nuclear. And over the last year or so, we've seen huge federal and state support um, for nuclear. What do you think needs to happen next policy-wise in the U.S.? Nuclear is one of the policy issue areas in the U.S. that actually has really strong bipartisan support. I think that people come at it from different perspectives. You see a lot of Democrats supporting nuclear because it can provide clean energy, because it can help us meet our climate goals, and because it can create jobs in their state. And you also see Republicans being supportive of nuclear because a lot of the job economic opportunity that comes around nuclear as well. So for example, 
The nuclear power plant being built in Wyoming with TerraPower is replacing a coal power plant. And that is creating jobs in a community that otherwise would have lost those jobs with the coal plant shutting down. So in D.C., there is a surprising amount of bipartisan support for nuclear energy. And that's not to say that all the work has been done. There's a few things that still need to happen for these reactors, the next generation of reactors to become a reality. Namely, we need to secure the fuel supply chain. We were previously planning on using fuel from Russia, which now is seems like a very bad option. So we need to create our own domestic fuel supply. We have some, but we need to ramp that up and we can work with our European partners to do so. We need to accelerate the licensing of different reactor types in order to deploy those technologies quickly. And we also need to figure out a more strategic export strategy and export finance strategy. So those are maybe the three big priorities I would say uh, need to happen at the U.S. federal level. What about in Europe? In Europe, it really depends on the member state. So there are member states like Germany, Austria, Luxembourg that are not pursuing new nuclear technology and don't want it to be part of the conversation. But then you have some member states like Czech Republic, Poland, Romania, you could have Bulgaria, France, that are looking at building new nuclear. And a lot of the hurdles there are very similar. They need to make sure that there are reactors that they can build in a right time frame at the right cost. And that's where international partners like the U.S. could be very supportive. Ultimately, they need... They need these projects to be on time and on budget. Speaking of Europe, I want to hear a bit more about your Carbon Free Europe initiative. We launched Carbon Free Europe around two years ago now, and we provide research and analysis to policymakers. So we do a lot of that energy systems analysis that I was describing in order to show what policies are necessary to facilitate the transition what technologies are necessary, how much of those technologies do you need to deploy and when, what is the investment level needed to support them. So we do a lot of analysis and research to support member, uh, both member states and EU level policy. And then we also do advocacy around tech inclusive climate policy. So it's a big priority of ours to ensure that the EU is investing in the innovation and deployment of a diversity of clean energy technologies to maximize the chances of succeeding in climate goals. So we do a lot of work supporting wind, solar, energy storage, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, nuclear energy. We very much look at where different technologies can help in different countries, in different areas of the economy, and work to ensure there's the policies to make sure that can get done. In the short term, what do you see as next for you via third way, via carbon-free Europe? What are, what are your immediate goals? So our immediate goals on the U.S. front, we're in a big stage of implementation. We had some incredible policy passed with 
the Inflation Reduction Act, Chips and Science, and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, a huge amount of money of investment in clean energy technologies that can be deployed across the country to spread out the economic and job benefits of creating a clean energy economy. So we're doing a lot of work right now, making sure that that funding is getting out the door, that those programs are being implemented, and that the money is getting to the right communities and the right types of projects. And it's a very exciting stage of implementation. There's also, as I mentioned, some work that we're still doing to try and get not just nuclear, but other technologies, the additional policy changes that are necessary for them to be deployed. And then on the European front, it's very much engaging. They're working right now on something called their Green Deal Industrial Plan, which is their response to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. After the U.S. passed IRA, our international partners took a step back and said, we need to find a way to also be competitive in the clean energy market. And so we're doing a lot of work right now in Europe, uh, helping advise on the Green Deal industrial plan and the different components of that. And then next year, there will be a huge election in Europe. So there's some shifting landscape that will happen in 2024, new political parties, a new mix in the EU parliament. And that will also be an opportunity to to find ways to engage in climate and clean energy policy with a new parliament, with a new kind of EU landscape. So those are some of the main areas. Well, for anyone interested in learning more about the work you're doing at Carbon for Europe um, or what's going on at Third Way, where should they go? They can visit either of our websites at thirdway.org or carbonfreeeurope.org. And they should also feel free to reach out. Email me or my staff. We're always happy to engage and continue the conversation. Please check us out on our website. We also are on Twitter, LinkedIn, all the typical social media. So we should be relatively easy to find. We, we like to end by asking for you to say what you think the future of nuclear is in one word. Maybe I'll use this as an opportunity to say... I'm definitely pro-nuclear in the sense that I think we need it for climate, but there are real hurdles to making nuclear reality. And I think as we move forward in finding solutions to things like waste, to security, to non-pro, to financing issues, to creating new fueling that is reliable with reliable partners, there's a lot that needs to be done in the nuclear space for nuclear energy to be a part of a clean energy future. I believe these are hurdles that we can overcome, but we need to be really smart and intelligent about them. So that's how I feel about nuclear. It's it's complicated. And you'll hear me talk about both the pros and the cons and where it fits in the energy system. I don't think it's just a simple answer. And I sometimes fall somewhere in between. So I'll say complicated. That's fair. I mean, I think it's important to have conversations like this to put it all out there and understand uh, what's on the table so we can find a path forward. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for chatting with us today. We covered so many important topics. If you want to learn more about Third Way or Carbon Free Europe, you can visit their website or find them on social media. 
And thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave your feedback to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. See you next time. Bye.